Let's open up our Bibles together now to Romans chapter 8 as we continue on in this absolutely glorious gift that the Lord has given us. Chapter 8 of Romans. We're going to be looking this morning at just verse 18. We looked at just verse 17 last week, this week just verse 18. Next week we are going to tackle more verses than just one. There's so much glory here. There's so many riches uh, that, that it would be a shame to not dive in uh, as deep as we can. And so as we read uh, the Word of God together this morning, I want to back us up and just start from verse 14, give us a little bit of a running start into our verse for this morning. So hear the Word of the Lord now together. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living supernatural word. Lord, this precious and perfect gift that you have given to us, through your word we come to know our God. Through your word we hear your voice by your spirit's work. Through your living word we are transformed into the likeness of our Savior. And so I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish all of your good purposes among us today by your spirit, through your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, even as as we shared together uh, in our time of prayer, and we heard the prayer requests, and we start to make mental lists of all the people, even in our small church, that that are in the hospital and are in serious situations, all of the, the grieving and the suffering that's going on around us in our lives. Each one of us has a, a wider network that is a part of our lives where we could come up with even bigger lists as we look at the world around us and we see the suffering that's going on around the world. The truth is we all know this far too well that there is much, much suffering in this world. We've all experienced it because of sin's entrance into the world in the fall of Adam, as we learned about in our adult Sunday school class this morning, just a little plug for that, 9 a.m., it's worth your time. But, but our world, because of sin entering into the world, our world in this fallen state is filled with misery. We live in a world that is filled with misery, and so suffering is a universal part of the human experience. In fact, we could say it's a major part of the human experience. Even though that's true, that that it's a major part of the human experience for everyone who lives in the world, that that's what it's like to live in a world that has been infiltrated and twisted up by sin, it is so easy for people to question God when they suffer. It's even easy for believers to question God when we suffer, to question God. I know God is loving. I know God is is superintending over all that he's made, but maybe he just doesn't love me. 
Maybe that's the issue. I'm the problem. Maybe there's something wrong with my faith that is making it so God's not coming through for me in the way I think he needs to. Well, how does a Christian get to thinking like that? One, one reason is there's a lot of bad teaching. There's a lot of bad teaching as it relates to suffering in the life of the Christian to the extent that some don't realize that suffering is an expected part of the Christian experience. An expected part of the Christian's life is suffering. Conversion does not mean that all our problems are going to be removed. In fact, salvation is going to increase your problems a bit. You're going to have all the problems that the rest of, the, of mankind has as they live in this fallen, sinful, death-marked world. And you're also going to be swimming against the current of that world because you are now in Christ. Steve Lawson says this, believers face resistance in their Christian life every day. We have stepped up to the front lines of spiritual warfare, which is full of temptations, persecution, and tribulation. We also are not immune to the daily realities of living in a fallen world. We still deal with sickness, the death of loved ones, children who go astray, business troubles, and more. We are not immune from the trials of the Christian life. Therefore, Paul must address the certainty and the reality of suffering in the Christian life. Well, as Paul does that, as Paul addresses the certainty and the reality of suffering in the Christian life, he does so by putting it in its proper context. In its proper context. Paul, Paul reminds us, even as he talks about the suffering that we endure, of the hope of glory that Christians have, a glory that is far beyond, infinitely greater than any of our sufferings. And yes, there is much suffering in this life. But the glory that is to be revealed to us is so much greater that these sufferings, Paul says, as he puts them in their proper context, these sufferings cannot in any way be compared with the great future that God has planned for us, which he planned from all eternity. Last week in verse 17, Paul talked about the fact that if we have been made into to God's children, if through Christ we have been made God's sons and daughters, then we are inheriting heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And it's that inheritance that drives Paul directly into making this statement in verse, uh, the end of verse 17, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. It's this, it's this thinking about the inheritance that we have as the sons of God, what it is that, that we receive as our inheritance from him that leads Paul to, to say, this is how now we understand our sufferings. We're not suffering on our own. We're not suffering out there alone, dealing with it by ourselves. We're fellow sufferers with Christ because we are fellow heirs with Christ. And so for God's children, suffering marks the way to glory, provided that you suffer with him, that you would also be glorified with him. Suffering with Christ proves that we are the children of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this on this passage, if you are suffering as a Christian and because you are a Christian, it's one of the surest proofs you can ever have of the fact that you're a child of God. And even in the ordinary suffering of this life, not just persecution you face for, for being in Christ, even the ordinary sufferings of this life, the Christian's suffering with hope, 
The Christian suffering while trusting in God unwaveringly is proof positive that we belong to him. And so in, in this passage, Paul certainly has in view suffering for Christ. Suffering because you are a Christian, because you are swimming against the current of the sinful world that you live in. But the truth is, we experience all sorts of suffering in this fallen world. For example, pain in childbirth, which about half of us have experienced. Just under half of us have witnessed, at the very least. Well, that's a product of the fall, right? That's because sin came into the world. Because of the fall, we now only even eat by the sweat of our brow. Food doesn't just naturally come to us. Provisions don't just naturally come to us. That's a, a product of the fall. It's a kind of suffering. Because of sins entering in the world and the fall of Adam in the garden, we are now subjected to sickness and weakness and poverty and plagues and famines and betrayals and disappointments and war and death. The list could go on and on and on. All of mankind faces suffering because of the fall. But for the Christian, this is what Paul wants to do. He wants to help us understand what's different about us from everybody else. For the Christian, suffering is redemptive. That's the difference. For the Christian, suffering is redemption. When Christians suffer, our affliction is not meaningless. There's nothing meaningless that ever happens to us or comes into our life. All of our suffering has purpose behind it. All of our suffering has meaning behind it. Our afflictions, Paul, Paul's going to say this here in, in maybe the most famous verse in chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It, what, what, what this means is this. Our afflictions are working for our good, too. Our afflictions are conforming us to the likeness of Christ. That's the context of, of Paul's statement there in verse 28. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's how we know that all things are working for our good. And so for the Christian, that's what our suffering is doing. It's working. It's at work for our good. God is at work in it. Reading the, the broader context, again, of verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's God's purpose from all eternity for you, Christian. It's to make you holy. It's to, it's to conform you, to shape you into the likeness of Christ. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He says then in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 25, that Jesus Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is, this is God's purpose for you, Christian, in saving you. It was to, to make you holy, to purify you. It's his purpose in all that he's doing. And to that end, God is working in our suffering 
for our good on a number of fronts. Suffering is productive. Suffering results in something. Paul said in chapter 5 of Romans, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's the posture the Christian is supposed to have. Now, it doesn't mean we're excited about them. We shared a number of prayer requests this morning, none of which I'm excited about, all of which I'm actually quite unhappy about. But our posture is we rejoice in our sufferings. There is a settled joy that trusts in the Lord, that trusts in his promises, that trusts in his providential hand of grace and mercy towards us. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. That's what it means to be able to rejoice in our sufferings. We have hope. We trust in God. We know that God is at work for our good. Suffering is productive. Suffering helps us to hope in heaven. It it helps us to let go of the world and its temptations and its allurements. It, It has a way, doesn't it, when you're suffering of kind of exposing the sham of the world to you, the cheap knockoff that the world is for true joy, true peace, true contentment. When we're suffering, we tend to see through that a little bit better. Suffering has a way of doing that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, The things that are unseen are eternal. Suffering does that for us. It it causes us to see this world and all the things around it. I just had a conversation right before the service this morning. We truly don't know what every day brings to us. The great suffering that might lie just moments ahead that we're not aware of. It has a way of helping us to see that this world and all that is in it is passing away. And to put our hope in something that is not passing away, something that is eternal, something that is solid. Further suffering produces perseverance in us. James chapter 1, verse 3. Know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's, that's an echo of what Paul said in chapter 5 of Romans that we just read moments ago. Suffering produces endurance. Suffering is corrective. It's a means that God uses to open our eyes when we are off course. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. He's grateful for his afflictions. He rejoices in his sufferings, to use Paul's language, because he sees it's a means by which God has brought him back to himself and to obedience. Suffering purifies us. Suffering produces holiness. God's Sons are loved and disciplined by God for their good. When God disciplines us, when God allows these things to come into our lives, He does it because He loves us. He does it because He's being kind to us. He does it because He's being good to us. He he disciplines us for our good that we might see and share in His holiness. Holiness that Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says, without holiness, no one will see God. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 9, the Lord says, I will refine them as one refined silver, test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. 
I will say they are my people. They will say the Lord is my God. This language of refining silver and gold is not a pretty image when you think about the fact that he's talking about you and your life. I'm going to apply so much heat, so much heat that they begin to boil and all the impurities begin to come to the surface. That's how he's going to purify us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, God uses our suffering like a hot iron to remove the wrinkles in our character. Christ will have a radiant bride. Christ will have a pure bride with, any, with no spot, stains, no spots, no wrinkles, dressed in fine linen, bright and clean and pure. And one of the ways that God purifies us is through suffering. Suffering, though, reveals the faithfulness of God. Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Have you ever been tempted to say that when you're going through affliction? Lord, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's not our fleshly temptation, is it? God, why do you not like me personally? And that's why you're letting this happen in my life. Last Lord's Day, we sang this great old hymn, Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. One of my favorite hymns. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. How we need to remind ourselves of that truth. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. God is caring for us in the midst of these things. Believer, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain, God the Father Almighty, who is your Father, is at work. He's at work for your eternal good. He is caring for you. Now, I'm not talking about blaming every bad thing that happens to you on God. I'm not saying that you need to go around doing that and get in arguments with people when you won't comfort anyone who's suffering by telling them, God did this to you because he loves you. No, that's not the moment to talk like that. Oh, but what a difference it makes in our lives if we actually believe the truths that Scripture tells us. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. This has not come upon me because you are angry with me. This has not come upon me in some way that it's going to overwhelm me. This is for my eternal good. And even if I never, ever, ever see that, your promise is more solid than what I see. Your truth is more solid than what I feel. Oh, Christian, I wish, I wish there was a button I could push that would just make us all live like that all the time. We need to be reminded of these truths. So, so what suffering does, it causes us to discover the comfort that is, it is in the Word of God that is in Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. So the same psalmist, who just less than 20 verses earlier said, in faithfulness you've afflicted me, he said, if I hadn't delighted in your Word, it would have killed me, though. 
I would have just died. Many of you have experienced this, that there is great comfort in the living Word of God. I've never sat by the bedside of a dying person and had them ask me, you like Civil War history, could you recite the Gettysburg Address for me now in this moment? They've never said, could you read to me the words of Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech? It's so inspirational. This is what I need in these last moments of my life. No, no, no. In those moments, in, in those most serious holy moments, it's the words of Scripture that we turn to for comfort and for peace. Further suffering humbles us. It causes us to trust in God's grace alone. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. He said, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that, that Paul had received. A thorn in the flesh was given, uh, was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Okay, when Paul says, I was given a thorn in the flesh, but then he goes on to say, it's a messenger of Satan harassing me, you get this feeling, right? There's some suffering involved in this. There's affliction involved in this. Paul, t- Paul goes on to tell us that, that he prayed fervently for this to be removed, this, this affliction. Three times he says he prayed fervently, and three times God answered him the same way, no. God, will you remove this affliction? This, this can't be good. This can't be from your hand. This is a messenger of Satan. Will you remove this affliction? And three times God says, no. And friends, there was kindness in that from God. That's what God revealed to Paul. What made Paul stop praying fervently and asking God to remove this affliction? It was what God revealed to him about the nature of that affliction. And God said, no, I will not. My grace is sufficient for you. And what does Paul tell us? Many of you know this passage very well. Therefore, I will what? Boast in my weakness. This is what suffering does. Paul's suffering safeguarded him from being arrogant. And Paul says, instead of boasting in myself, instead of boasting in my knowledge and my reputation and this glorious revelation that I have received from the Lord, I will boast in my weakness. I will boast in my need. It humbled him. Caused him to trust in, to rely on God's grace alone. And friend, it will do the same for us. It will do the same for us. If we have the same mind that Paul had. Suffering then prepares us for glory. Verse 17 calls us heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering prepares us for that glorification. For that that glory with Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12, If we endure, we will also reign with him. So this is why believers are called to rejoice in our sufferings. It's not that we enjoy what's happening to us. We don't enjoy what's happening to us. It's not that we're so thankful to have it. And this is going exactly the way I would have planned it all out for myself. No, that's not what it means. We rejoice because we trust God. We know that he will not bring a single thing into our life that is not for our good eternally. Knowing that, that even this suffering right now is going to prepare me for glory. We can rejoice in our sufferings if we 
live our lives in eager anticipation of entering into the glory promised to us by God himself. That's how we can rejoice in our sufferings. But, but it's only those who are in Christ that have that hope. It's only those who are in Christ who have this solid hope. Those who refuse to bow their knee to King Jesus have no hope. They are separated from God. They don't have promises from God that their suffering is redemptive. It's not. It's only those who are in Christ that have this hope, this promise from God. This life of suffering is the best life the unbeliever is ever going to have. Think about that. Look at the world around you and the suffering in it. It's as good as it's going to get eternally for the unbeliever. Unbelievers suffer in this life just like all the rest of mankind does, but what they don't know is that greater suffering has been prepared for them and is waiting for them. They're objects of wrath, set apart for destruction, the Bible says, and they will suffer greatly forever in hell. The suffering of this life is just a foretaste. It's just a shadow. But believers are objects of mercy, set apart for glory. The glory that awaits us is immeasurably greater than any good thing that happens in this life too. Any good thing in this life is only a shadow. It's just a taste. There's immeasurable, infinite glory awaiting us so Paul says in verse 18, that was all introduction. We're doing great. It's a beautiful day. Enjoy it through the windows. It'll be dark by the time we're out of here. Now Paul says in verse 18, some of you are like, we think he might be serious. That's the bad part of this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This word for here, logizomai. It's a mathematical calculation. It's a logical conclusion. Paul says, I have applied my mind to the study of the gospel and the logical result of these gospel truths that I have been studying and, and meditating on is the suffering of this life is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Just a note about this word, logizomai, it, it, it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a word of thinking. It's a word of reason. Christian, you are not called to shallow, effortless, thoughtless faith. You're called to think. You're called to reason. You're called to meditate on truth. You're called to study, to show yourself well approved. I, I pray that this would be a church, Maple Grove would be a church of thinking Christians. The hope of glory belongs to thinking Christians. It, it, you have to know the truth before you can believe the truth. It's Paul's deep meditation, deep thinking, hard thinking on these truths that leads him to go, the suffering of this life is not worth comparing whatsoever to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. So friends, study God's word. Think deeply on God's word. But notice too, Paul speaks of the sufferings of what? Of this present time. The sufferings of this present time. The, 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 there are two ages here. There's the present age, which, which Galatians chapter 1, Paul calls this present evil age. 
And then there's the glorious coming age. In this present evil age, all people experience suffering. It doesn't matter where you were born or when you were born, what your family is like, what choices you make in your life to try to avoid suffering. All people experience suffering, and this will continue until the Lord's return. It's true for the believer and the unbeliever alike. We all experience suffering in this life. But for unbelievers, the suffering is only going to intensify in the age to come. For believers, though, this suffering only lasts until the end of this age for us. It only lasts until our deaths. In the age to come, what we will have is immeasurable glory. Paul says, for those in Christ, the sufferings of this present age then cannot be compared to that glory that's going to be revealed to us. There's no comparison whatsoever that can be made between these things. Paul Paul takes all the suffering that this world has to throw at us and he puts it on one side of the scales and then on the other side of the scales, Paul places glory. This glory that awaits us and he says these sufferings which when placed on that scale make the scale drop like a rock, oh these sufferings though when they're compared with glory being put on the other side, they don't weigh a thing. Think about that. It's true. It's true. Paul says it here in Scripture, which means God says it. It's true. Glory, of course, is referring to the future glory that awaits us in heaven. We're we're supposed to view our suffering not on its own. We don't don't just look at our suffering and look at nothing else. We, We view our suffering through the lens of eternity. But Paul's not minimizing suffering here. He's not minimizing the sufferings we experience in this life. There's no, there's no statement here. So just, you know, cheer yourself up. Don't worry about it. It's not that bad. Some of us have, as parents have been tempted to say to our kids, this, by the way, is not a helpful thing to say to your kids, when they're really struggling and they're upset about something, you go, what's so bad about your life? You got everything good. You don't even know. No, it's all they know. All they know is their life at their age. You're not doing them any favors. All right, that was my one parenting tip for the morning. Paul's not telling us that your sufferings aren't so bad, it's fine. Rub a little dirt on it, get on with your life. No, he's not minimizing them. Scripture consistently addresses the real and painful nature of suffering. It is real. Paul himself is all too well acquainted with suffering, far more than any of us are. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul describes some of it. He's speaking of his opponents here, and he says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with, with far greater labors, far more imprisonment, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. By the way, he doesn't mention it there, but then when he finally makes it to shore, a snake jumps out of the fire and bites him. One thing on top of another. Frequent journeys, 
Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst without food and cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there's the daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Paul knows suffering. He knows it better than we know it. The sufferings we experience in this life are real. The sufferings we experience in this life are painful. Paul doesn't shrug that off. Paul knows that all too well, but what he does tell us is this. We must keep them in perspective. We don't suffer as those who have no hope. We don't suffer as those who have no inheritance. We don't suffer as those who aren't the recipients of great and glorious promises from God Almighty. It's in light of that perspective, it's in light of those promises, it's in light of that inheritance then that we come to understand our suffering in this life is just the tiniest fraction of a moment. In the light of eternity, Steve Lawson again says, we must keep our suffering in perspective. This future glory is so weighty and heavy that the scales of the present suffering And the future glory fall heavy on the side of glory. The weight of suffering is like a feather in comparison. Our present sufferings are temporal. The glory that awaits is eternal. There will be no end to the glory. Our present sufferings are but a grain of sand on the beach of eternity. Our current trials are passing, momentary, but what awaits us on the other side will never come to an end. That's the perspective we need if we're going to understand our sufferings. If we're going to suffer with Christ rightly. We need to continually keep that scales that Paul presents to us in front of our eyes so we don't forget the glory that awaits us. We need to continually look at that scale and see, though when our suffering was first placed on it, the scale dropped hard on the side of suffering, that when glory was placed on the other side, the suffering didn't weigh a thing. We need to constantly look at that and be reminded. It's it's too easy for us to fall into despair. It's too easy for us to question God. It's too easy to forget His faithfulness. As if somehow salvation wasn't enough and He owed us something. Friend, God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you salvation. He doesn't owe you kindness. He doesn't owe you mercy. He doesn't owe you one good minute in your life. But for those who have been saved by the grace of God, how crazy it is to then heap more expectations on him about how our lives in this, in this age have to go. Oh, but we're all tempted to do it. We're all tempted to judge how good God is and how much he loves us by our perception of how our lives are going in the moment. It's too easy to make demands of God, which are often unspoken. We would never say these things. We demand that our lives go the way we have determined our lives ought to go. So we need to continually remind ourselves of the outcome of this comparison that Paul makes. That's why Paul holds these two things up together so we can see the comparison between our suffering on the one hand and the glory that awaits us on the other. We need to constantly look at those scales so that we can see there's no comparison whatsoever. There is no comparison The reason we need to keep reminding ourselves is because of what Paul says about the nature of this glory. He says what? It is the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
to be revealed to us. In other words, it has not yet been revealed to us. It's still hidden. Our suffering, on the other hand, is obvious. Our suffering is in our face. In the midst of suffering, that's all you can see. But the glory has not been revealed to us. Not fully. Not fully. All we know about the glory that awaits us is what God has chosen to reveal to us. Like we said last week, we don't actually know a whole lot about heaven. We know a little bit. We've been allowed to momentarily peer in, get a, get a glimpse, but, but heaven is veiled to us at the moment. The, the, the few glimpses we get of heaven in Scripture are anything but straightforward and explanatory, are they? We just get these grand and glorious little peaks. It's just a taste. It's just enough to give us an idea. God's intention is to make us long for our eternal home. Just enough for us to see this is glorious beyond our ability to comprehend, to, to imagine. We need to meditate on the glory that will be revealed to us. We, we might not have a clear and full picture of it, but we have God's promise, and that's more than enough, is it not? God has given us exactly what we need in Scripture. We need no other revelation of the glory that awaits us in order to make us long for it in order to make us live for it, in order to make that the lens that we see everything in our lives through. God's word is sufficient. We need to meditate on the glory that will be revealed to us. We need to trust in God's promises. We tend to meditate on, to focus on the sufferings that are in front of us and then cast occasional glances at the glory that's going to be revealed to us in the future. Here's the thing I'm focused on. Yeah, this. Back to this, though how we live our lives so often. And I say we. It's easy to be consumed with our day-to-day -day lives. It's hard not to be. All the more when we're facing trials, all the more when we're facing suffering, we are tempted in those moments to let our emotions dominate us. But we are meant to fix our eyes on the promise of eternal glory, to, to trust the rock-solid promises of God that can never be shaken instead of our own feelings and understandings which are shaken every, every time the ground underneath our feet quakes a little bit. Our understanding, our feelings are such fickle things. Oh, we're called to trust in the promises of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one more time. Hope is the measure of true Christianity. Which is through and through otherworldly. Pseudo-Christianity always looks chiefly at this world. Popular Christianity is entirely this worldly and is not interested in the other world, but true Christianity has its eye mainly on the world which is to come. It's not primarily concerned even with deliverance from hell and punishment and the things that trouble and worry us. That reality belongs to the past. True Christianity sets its affections on the things which are above and not on the things which are on earth. It's that which says, along with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, 2 chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what, on it, what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. So that's what Paul's saying here. This isn't the power of positive thinking we're talking about. Look on the bright side. Look for that silver lining in that dark cloud. It's not what Paul's saying. He's not talking about being optimistic. 
Paul's already told us the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us if we have been saved by him. And it's this Holy Spirit who points us towards our home and glory. He is constantly fixing our eyes where Christ is. In chapter 15 of Romans, which we'll get to in some seven years, Paul says this in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about revving ourselves up. He's not talking about thinking positively. He's talking about the Holy Spirit who dwells with, uh, within us, who causes us to abound in this hope. He is our guarantee of God's promises. He releases into us the great hope of the glory of God. Beloved saints, glory is waiting for us. That's good news. The, the ultimate end of our salvation in Christ is not suffering. It's glorification. It's fellowship with Christ in glory. So friends, don't be surprised when suffering comes to you. I know some of you are enduring great suffering right now. If you're not enduring suffering right now, you probably already have, but you certainly will in the days to come. But in your suffering, do not doubt God's love for you. Don't be shaken and doubt God's power. Don't despair and doubt his care for you. Don't become bitter and accuse God of some sort of wrongdoing. Understand that God is at work in and through your sufferings. He is working for your good. He is working for your eternal joy. He is working to prepare you for a glory that is so eternally weighty that these momentary afflictions could not possibly compare. Believers, that's where our hope is found. That's where our hope in this fallen world, this world of suffering, is found. Let the go this gospel truth cheer you. Let this gospel truth encourage your heart today. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33 to his disciples, In the world you will have trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's where hope is found. That's where strength to carry on is found. If you've not believed in the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not bowed your knee before Him in humble submission, I call you now. I urge you to come to Him today. In fact, speaking as God's messenger I command you to come to him today. God commands us to repent. He doesn't beg us. Acts 17, verse 30 says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands. And he commands us in love. This is a loving command, this command to, to come to him in repentance. He is ready. He is eager to receive the one who comes. If you will call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And the sure result of this great salvation is glory. That's the call. But it's not him begging. It's not him wringing his hands, hoping you'll just make the right choice. 
He commands you, come to him. Bow your knee before him. Saints, we need to, to do the same, don't we? To bow our knee before the lordship of Jesus Christ. To submit our lives, our understandings, our feelings before the, the lordship of Jesus Christ and to say, I will stand on the truth of your word more than I stand on those other things. I will trust in you. And oh, if we would view our lives through the lens of this glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ. What a difference it would make. What a glorious difference it would make in us. That's my prayer for myself and for you as well. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, the glories of your promises are astounding to us, truly Things our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, our minds cannot conceive the greatness of that which you have prepared for those who love you. But Lord, by your Spirit, you give us this promise. You give us this glimpse. You give us this revelation. Lord, cause us to trust in you. By your Spirit who dwells within us, cause us to, to walk in this hope, to live in this hope, to have this hope. Lord, that we would live and die in the hope of the promise that we have in Christ. Lord, I do pray especially for any that are hearing my voice that don't know you. Lord, their hearts have been far from you. They have been rebellious. They have been running from you. I pray, Lord, in your mercy by that same spirit that you would grant to them now, Lord, the gift of saving faith, the gift of repentance, that they would turn from sin and come to you, bow their knee before the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as you would welcome them, as you've welcomed us, Lord, that you would welcome them to yourself, into this glorious inheritance that you've prepared for your sons and daughters. Pray for us as a church, Lord. Make us faithful. Make us faithful ambassadors of this kingdom, of this gospel, of this Savior, of you, our God and Father. Pray, Lord, that you be glorified in us and that you be glorified through us. In Jesus' name, amen.